Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asato Ma Sadagamaya Tamaso Homaham Jyoti Gamaya Mrityohormam Amritaham Gamaya Avi Ahavihir Maedhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaham Tena Mahaham Pahinidam Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Reach us through and through ourselves, and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is true humility. And uh, we're going to be talking about that virtue, which is characteristic of saints and sages and mystics and heroes and any man of character who is struggling to loosen his grip on the personality. Humility is... uh, most famously, a Christian virtue. If we read, for example, in the life of St. Francis, we know that the Franciscan monks used to wear a brown-colored habit. That was because the, well, the word humility comes from the, coming to us from the Latin word humus, which means the earth. The ground, of course, brown, Bruin, like the bear. A bear is called Bruin because he lives close to the ground. He lives in a burrow in the ground, so he's kind of brownish colored. In medieval times, during the uh, days of the uh, of the serfdom, the the lord of the manor would uh, ride around on a, on a on a horse. And he'd never be seen walking in the fields. It's only the, only the poor peasants who would walk in the fields, kicking clods of earth, kind of more humble. They used to eat umbles. Umbles means like the, they kill the deer, the best parts of the deer. The venison would go to the nobleman. And the innards of the deer, that is the umbles, would be distributed among the poor and the peasants. So it came to be called humility, and um, to refer to that spirit of deference, that spirit of meekness and modesty that's associated with kind of coming down off your high horse. If you read in Butler's Lives of the Saints, There was a famous saint, her name was Isadora, 
She lived in a, in a convent in ancient Egypt, near to the, where the Desert Fathers had their caves. And uh, she was famous for her humility. And she served there in the convent. She'd go around with just an old dish rag wrapped around her head and um, didn't feel worthy to eat with the other nuns. She'd just kind of pick up the crumbs that had fallen from the table. The other sisters of the convent were um, lacking in the virtue of charity. So they often ridiculed her and um, relegated her to doing the most menial and the lowest of, of tasks uh, in the convent, often made practical jokes at her expense. But Isadora, she suffered all those things with without complaint. Now one day there came a knock on the door, and who was at the door was St. Petrim. This town was in a small town in northern Egypt, called Tibinisi, and Petrim had come out of the desert for a reason. And when he knocked on the door, he was welcomed into the convent, and there he shared with the assembled uh, sisters a vision that he had had, an angel had appeared before him in his cave in the desert, and had told him that he must journey on to this convent in Tibinisi, and uh, there he would find a nun who was filled with the light of the grace of God, an elected soul who kind of filled with the light of grace. And he would recognize her by the crown over her head. That was the vision that he had had from the angel of light. And so having uh, shared this vision, he looked around, and who walks into the room was Isadora. Immediately he recognized her, because over her head there shone a light of divine grace. And St. Petrim, immediately he rose and fell at her feet. And Isidora responded by asking for his blessing. All of the other sisters, they were so repented of their past behavior. And uh, they were stunned and amazed to see the behavior of the saint. And they also began to honor and to revere Isidora as a saint in their midst. And uh, so the story goes that she couldn't very long tolerate this spirit of adulation. And in the last part of her life, she retired to a hermitage in the desert where she attained her salvation. So uh, that's the Christian. A lot of stories come to us from the Christian saints. But we see, too, if we go to the tradition, 
of the lives of the saints in ancient India, there too we see, if we read uh, in the disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, you know that among his disciples, one of the outstanding disciples, one of them was a householder whose name was Nag Mahashai. And um, Nag Mahashai was known for his intense, remarkable humility. And we can read the anecdotes of what he would, often he would say when addressing the other devotees that, oh, please forgive me. I'm the dust of the dust of your feet. I'm the lowest of the low. I'm lower than the, I'm lower than the worm that crawls in the earth. And on one occasion, Swami Naranjananda, another disciple, monastic disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, chastised him and said, why do you say things like that, always demeaning yourself? Sri Ramakrishna taught us that we should not think so little of ourselves. And uh, Nag Maharshi says, yes, he says, I know the teachings of the Master, but I can't help it. I'm, I'm just speaking the truth. I know that I'm the, uh, that I'm the dust of the dust of the feet. And so like that later they used to say that Mahamaya cast her net over the world and the two people escaped. One of them was Swami Vivekananda who used to made himself so vast, so great that they couldn't be contained by the net. And the other to escape was Nag Mahashai, who just kind of zipped through the interstices of the net, made himself small that he couldn't be caught. And in the Mahabharata, or in the Ramayana, we read these are the epics of India, two epics of ancient India. Ramayana, we read about the story of Hanuman, the monkey god, the monkey saint, the devotee of Sri Rama. And uh, he was on a mission to save Sita in Ceylon. And he journeyed all through India down to the town at the tip of the continent. And there he found himself in difficulty um, because he had this vast water, the Straits of Ceylon. He couldn't cross there. No boats, no ferries were running, crossing over that channel. That didn't matter. Hanuman uh, was a, he, he had all kinds of supernatural powers, Siddhis, they're called. And so he just jumped up in the air. He flew through the air. And he's flying now through the air, cro crossing over the channel. And uh, why are there no ferry boats plying here? Why are there no ships going back and forth? Well, that's because of Surasa. Surasa is like a demoness who lives in the depths of the water. She's like a, a leviathan or a titan who's down there submerged in the water. When any, whenever anyone pa comes past that way, she rises and gobbles them up and eats them up. So like this, Hanuman is flying through the air and suddenly there arises up out of the water a giant demoness smiling, looking there. She opens her mouth. Now Hanuman, seeing that from afar, he has a great momentum of his flight. He has to make a quick decision, but he has the Siddhis. 
You know the Siddhis spoken of in the Raja Yoga third chapter. Anima, laghima, prapti, prakamyam, mahima, tata. They give a whole list of those, those eight primary siddhis. The first two are called the anima, laghima. That means the ability to make yourself as small as an atom and the ability to make yourself as huge and as heavy and vast as a mountain. Hanuman had those powers. So seeing that demoness and seeing that mouth is open, Hanuman used his second power to expand himself as big as a mountain. And he got bigger and bigger and bigger. But Surasa also has powers. So her mouth also. She's looking there. Her mouth gets bigger and bigger. He gets big as a mountain. At the very last moment, he flies into the mouth. And at the very last moment, he switches over. To his anima. The mountain suddenly shrinks down to the size of a little grain of rice, goes right through her teeth, and zips on to complete his mission in Ceylon. So sometimes you have to make yourself small. We see exemplified that virtue of humility. Humility is uh, often best maybe understood as uh, an opposite for the, the corresponding vice, which is undue pride. Undue pride. Now, in the, uh, in the religion of the Greeks, Plato, Aristotle, and all the Greeks, Pride was considered to be a, a sterling virtue. The Greeks placed great value on noble pride. And we too, we can see that there is such a thing as healthy pride. There is such a thing as, as having a kind of a, of a healthy self-respect, a high self-esteem, which is self-respect and self-confidence. It's good for us to take pride in our work, to take pride. We can speak of a proud parents. They're proud of their children. We can refer to our children maybe as, as our pride and joy. We can be proud that we are disciples of a, of a famous guru. But usually uh, in the uh, in Judeo-Christian tradition, that is, most of us raised in this tradition, the word pride has negative connotations. And the pride is considered to be one of the seven deadly sins. It's one thing to think well of yourself, but that you shouldn't think too well of yourself. Pride is often associated with um, vanity and self-glorification. We speak of someone who is as proud as a peacock, or someone who we visualize a proud person as riding on a, uh, on a high horse, wearing a stuffed shirt and a high hat, and uh, looking down his nose at other people. That's like a proud person. And uh, pride, it takes many different forms. Pride of wealth, 
pride of learning, pride of position, power. Sri Ramakrishna tells about a, a frog who lived in a field, and one day the frog found a rupee coin. Well, the rupee coin, maybe it's five cents. But to that frog, this huge, dragged it, great labor, he dragged it back into his little burrow, and there he sat there with this rupee coin. He couldn't believe it. He was so proud that he was the most wealthy of all beings. Till one day an elephant came walking by that way, well, walking by the whole earth, shaking, trembling. The, earth just, the elephant just stepped on the top of the little burrow. And that frog came crawling out, shook his fist. What? How dare you? How dare you walk over this burrow? Don't you know that I have a rupee coin in here? <laughs> he was so proud. Proud of his wealth. And Sri Ramakrishna tells about the, uh, the scavenger woman. She one day, she was uh, the poorest of the poor, the castes, the outcasts, maybe in, in old India. Somehow, after many years, she was a, she married and she was given some poor bangles, you know, bangle like a bracelet that goes on your wrist. So she had two iron bangles. They weren't, they weren't silver bangles or golden bangles or anything. She had two. That was a, her. She had got those, but she had, she, used walk, she used to walk around the Dakshineshwar temple like this. She would look at her wrist. Always, she doing her work. She'd be looking at her wrist. And when guests would come and arrive at the temple, she would always be standing near the footpath. And as they walked by, she would go like this, you know, shake her, shake her wrist. They'd hear the jingling of those bangles. So that's kind of the pride, the pride of wealth. Sometimes they say, pride goeth before a fall. You've heard that, the similar Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. We know that very well. Once upon a time, there was a lion king who, he looked at himself one day in the mirror and he thought to himself, he said, my, what a noble creature I am. And he thought, I will go and walk through the streets of the town and show, because just to show my devoted subjects that I am every inch a king. And so saying, he put on his robes of state and he put a heavy crown upon his head and he pinned all of those gold and silver medals to his coat. And then he went out and with his knights, he mounted a great horse and he began to ride through the streets. And... Uh, the townspeople seeing him come oh, your majesty, majesty, everyone bowed low before him, and the king thought, yeah, that's very good. Yeah, yeah, they should. It's very, very appropriate for them to be bowing before me because I am every inch a king. Yeah, he rode on, and then he horse came to a stop. He looked down. There is a tiny little beetle 
by the side of the road, down by the did muddy old ditch, by, by the side of the road. King stopped his horse, looked down there, looked down his nose there at that beetle, said, I command you to bow down before me. And the tiny little beetle, look at your majesty, he said, I am bowing, I am bowing, you're so, look closer. And so the king, he said, what? He looked, leaned over his horse, leaned way over, he looked there. He said, what? He said, I can't see you. You're so small. You're so insignificant. I said, I don't think you are bowing. The little, little uh, tiny beetle said, oh, yes, your majesty, I am bowing. Look a little bit closer. So the king you know, he looked, he leaned way over further and further. Of course, <laughs> lost his balance. Too top heavy with all that heavy crown and all those gold and silver medals. He lost his balance, toppled off, fell off that horse, hit the ground, rolled down into the gutter. Little beetle, she just scampered her away. And there the king sat there in the ditch. Every inch a king covered with dirt and mud. So, uh, well, you see, that's the moral of the story. That uh, the high and the mighty, the pride goeth before a fall. <laughs> so, uh, humility, pride. We can kind of understand when we kind of get a juxtaposition of the opposites. We get a feeling for true humility. So we talk here about pride of pride of wealth. Pride of power, position, high status, pride of learning. Once upon a time, there was a, a pundit who was uh, famous. He was a famous Sanskrit scholar. And uh, he could give excellent interpretations of verses of scripture, easily quote chapter and verse. But uh, he was a little proud, and he was a little bit of a vain about his learning. In fact, he was so proud that he would walk around wearing, he didn't just wear ordinary cotton dhoti and chadar, he wore a silk Silk dhoti in Chadhar, and uh, he would carry under one arm, he would always carry a big Sanskrit book. And with the other, he would be smoking, as he smoked only the best English cigarettes. Now, one day the pundit was on his way to give a a class in Sanskrit grammar, he had, he had to cross over the river Ganges to the city of Varanagar on the other side of the Ganges. And on that day, it was, uh, the weather was very bad. In fact, it was blowing up a storm. And uh, there were no boats plying across the river at all. But the pundit, scheduled to give his lecture. He came striding down there to the river, to the ghat. They're along the river Ganges, they're ghats, that means like 
places where the ferry boats can dock and land. And the ferry boats are just small boats in the old olden days. They're moved by poles. The ferryman will stand there and has a long pole. He'll pole out into the water. There are no ferry boats there. But the pundit looks up and down the river, sees down there there was a boathouse, and he called out in imperious tones, demanding, so where is the ferry? Poor ferryman in there. He had not intended to go out in this bad weather. But hearing those, that commanding tone of that, of that famous pundit, he came and uh, he agreed to take him across the river, even though the weather was very bad and the pundit was his only passenger. What could he do? So they got in the river, they got in the boat and warped out into the water. By this time, the wind, you had a strong west wind. Heavy clouds come grew, moving across the sky. Pundit was completely oblivious of the weather. Sat there in the, in the, in the boat, smoking his English cigarette. He looked down his nose at the ferry, and he said, tell me, my good man, have you, ever, have you ever studied Sanskrit grammar? Poor ferryman, he's laboring there with his polling that boat. Oh, no, sir, he said, revered sir, he said, I'm, I, I'm illiterate. I've never, I never went to school. I can't even read. I'm not a learned man like yourself. Oh, said, I'm so sorry, said the pundit. You, you can't do it in Sanskrit. You've missed out on 25% of the joy of living. So saying, he closed his eyes, he absorbed and smoking his English cigarette, and didn't notice that by this time, the uh, wind was blowing more swiftly. The, uh, the thunder was rolling. Um, the, the waves of the river Ganges were beginning to become more choppy. And upon that, he opened his eyes. He looked down his nose at that frame. He says, hey, tell me, my good man, have you ever studied the Nyaya Vaisheshika philosophy and logic systems. Oh, said the ferryman. He said, oh, no, sir. He said, I never, I work from dawn till, till, till dusk. I've, I've never been to have time to go to school and to study. Learned man such as yourself, please forgive me. Oh, I'm so sorry, said Pandit. You don't know Sanskrit? You don't know the Nyaya Vaisheshika? Then I'm sorry you've missed out on 50% of the joy of living. So saying, he, he absorbed again within his own thoughts, preparing his lecture, didn't notice that by now the thunder was rolling and the lightning was flashing and the drops of rain were beginning to fall. And then he opened his eyes again, looked down his nose at that poor face. Hey, tell me, my good man, you ever heard of that? Have you ever heard of the Sankhya yoga system? Have you ever heard of the Mimamsa and the Uttara, Mimamsa philosophical systems? Oh, said the ferryman, no, I've never heard of those systems. Please forgive me, revered sir. I have so much to learn from a man such as yourself. Yeah, you don't know that either, said the pundit. So sorry, missing out. You don't know Nyaya and Vesheshika. You don't know Sanskrit or the Mimamsa. Missing out on 75% of your joy of living. What's the point? of your living anyhow. So saying, he began to smoke again, didn't notice that by now the thunder's rolling, the lightning's flashing, the rain is falling, the wind is blowing, the waves are moving back and forth, and that little ferry boat 
is rocking back and forth, back and forth. And uh, at that point, the ferryman addressed the proud pundit. And he said, Revere, sir, excuse me. I'd like to ask you a question. Um, do you know how to swim? The pundit said, swim? He said, no, I don't know how to swim. Why should I swim at all? He said, oh, I'm so sorry, said the ferryman, because you're about to miss out on 100% of the joy of living. And so saying, the ferryman, he jumped into the river, and the boat capsized, and the ferryman was able to swim to the other shore. But that proud, vain pundit, he drowned in those muddy waters. And he was never heard of again. <laughs> so, pride of wealth, pride of learning, pride of power and position and your status. In the uh, Mahabharata, we read about the story about Narada. Narada was a a great adept in music. He, uh, he was um, considered to be the supreme exponent of the ragas and the raganis. That is, you know, in Indian music, you know, they don't write out melodies like we do. They have kind of sets of, of traditional chord progressions and all they call that are keyed into the morning and the noon and the night and the different times of the day. They're called ragas. Ragas and raginis. So uh, Narada was considered to be a master of the playing of the, these ragas on the veena. And in fact, he had many followers who flattered him, telling him that not only was he a master, he was a perfect master. And those, uh, those flattering words were sweet to his ears. Narada, often he would repeat what others had said of him, even uh, in the conversation with the gods and the goddesses. So Narada was very proud of his talent and his mastery of the, of the Veena. Now it so happened that Sri Krishna watched all this. And Sri Krishna was disturbed to see that Narada was becoming infatuated with his own talents. And uh, he decided to put a stop to it. So one day he, uh, he met Narada. He said, Narada, that it, uh, an invitation has come to you from the Shiva and Parvati on Mount Kailash. They're asking for you to perform on the veena for them. Oh, is that all right? Said Narada, yes. That would be good. I can do that. And so they uh, began their journey to, uh, to Mount Kailash. Now it so happens that on the way, they went over hill and dale, and they came to a meadow. And there in that meadow, they look over there and they saw that there were maidens in the meadow. Maidens of exquisite beauty. 
but they were, he heard that they are crying and weeping and wailing. And as they came closer, Narada looked and he saw, why are they crying? Because they're, they're all, they all are disfigured. Some of them are just missing an eyebrow, but others were missing an eye. Others were, were missing an ear. And uh, one was missing an arm, another a leg. And Narada was shocked to see this terrible sight. He asked Sri Krishna, what is, who are these people? What, what, hap what happened here? Sri Krishna said, why don't you go and ask them, where are, where are we? Who are you? Why are you in this condition? So Narada went over there and asked them, where, where are we? Oh, you're in the valley of the land of music. Ragas and Araginis. And we have been mutilated by a man. We've never seen his face, but we know his name. His name is Narada. <laughs> and he's mutilated us on his vena. And Narada, seeing, hearing this, he was so shocked and was so devastated. And... Uh, Stunned, so he turned to Sri Krishna. He said, "So saddened by this, thinking, what, what have I done? What a, a told Krishna? Yes, I thought I was a great musician. That's terrible. What's happened? I'm never going to play the veena again." Then Sri Krishna says, "Well, just now he says, you know, you don't have to stop playing on the veena, but just realize that." Uh, you have not yet attained perfection. You have a long process, a long practice before you. And uh, Narada agreed. And he said, please uh, convey my excuse. If you go to Shiva and Parvati, I won't be performing for them today. Narada had been humbled by that experience and returned home without performing for Shiva and Parvati. Returned home a sadder, but a wiser man, and uh, learnt something of the spirit of humility. And so we see here that we can learn about humility by some of these kind of contrasting it with some of these stories of pride, pride of wealth, pride of power, pride of position, pride in your talents and your, your abilities, pride of learning. And even as students of soul, God, and religion, we have to be a kind of aware of uh, something which is called spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. Maybe it's a, a spiritual pride speaks to us, especially as students of the Vedanta philosophy. Because we're used to making high flights in metaphysics and uh, teaching uh, the universal religion. And once upon a time, there was a mouse. 
And the mouse lived his life in a state of torment and fear and terror because his little burrow there, little hole in the wall, was always patrolled by a cat. And whenever he would go out, the cat would come, he'd rush back and couldn't get out, couldn't hardly get any food, lived in fear, lived in terror. He said, how can I live like this? Then he heard tell of a famous holy man had come into town. The holy man, a saint. And the holy man, a saint, he could work miracles. And he thought, yeah, I could go to that. Let me go. Seek him out. Little mouse went and journey, came to that holy man, prostrated before him, told him his sad story. And then made a plea, plea to him, revered sir, by your grace, is it please help me? He said, I, well, what do you want? What do you want? He said, oh, I, I want, I don't want to be, I'd like to be a cat. Oh, oh, and the holy man said, uh, okay, we'll be a cat. Yeah. And such were the power of his words that suddenly that little mouse transformed into a cat. He looked down, he said, oh, he was a cat. Ah, he went, he was so happy. Turned around, went back. <laughs> Never again did he have to fear cats. Didn't have to worry about them. And uh, he lived happily for a while, but then he found he had another problem. He was chased by dogs. Dogs tormented his life, and he tormented, and he would run away. Finally thought, hmm, yeah, that holy man maybe can help me. So he went back to the holy man, prostrated himself before him, revered, sir, please, my life's a torment. Well, what do you want to the holy man? He said, I, I can't be a cat anymore. Please make, make me into a dog. Holy man said, well, okay, be a dog. And such were the power of his words. Suddenly the, the, the cat suddenly became a dog. Looked down, he was a dog. No more problem with cats. So he began to live there. And uh, no sooner had he began to live as a dog, he found the dogs also have problems. And that is that they're, they're often preyed on by jackals. Jackal's much worse than a dog. And it wasn't long before the poor dog was prostrating again before the holy man, begging for another boon. I can't live like this. Please give me a, make me into a, a jackal. Now, by this time, the holy man is becoming a little impatient. You're not content. He said, I've done, so, done all this. Okay, be a jackal. Yeah, jackal goes around, preying on dogs, on cats, on mice, on everything. Except for one thing. Jackals have an enemy, and that is the tiger. Tiger is the lord of the jungle. And Indian, Indian, old India is the, not the lion, it's the tiger. Tiger has no enemies there. He preys on all, he eats the jackals for lunch, no problem. So the jackal then realized, yes, my t I must return again to the holy man. Sir, please, I can't live as a jackal. What do you want this time? Make me into a tiger. Oh, all right, here, you'll be a tiger. Suddenly there he was, a tiger. And he walked out. Everything, everyone cowed before him. He's a walk. He's the lord of the jungle. He walked through the jungle. It wasn't long, though. Before even the tiger realized that he had an enemy, the hunters. And he realized that his enemy was man. And that he couldn't live happily, he couldn't be at peace until he also was a man. 
So we return to the holy man. There's a poor holy man sitting there. And the lion comes striding up. Sir, sir, yes, I have one more requirement. I, uh, I can't live like this as a lion, as a, as a tiger. Uh, I can't tolerate, you know, being subject to hunters. Uh, I want you to make me into a man. And the holy man said, well, I, I, I've done so much. He said, why don't you just be content with being a tiger? You've made so much progress. And uh, be a tiger, the king of beasts. And the tiger looked at him and said, what? He said, you're hesitating? He said, well, look at my claws. Can't you see my claws? Can't you see my teeth? It'll make me a man this very moment or I'll eat you up. And holy man said, be a mouse again. <laughs> And so the tiger suddenly changed into a little squeak, squeak, little mouse. There he is, reduced again to a mouse. Well, that was his, he had spiritual pride. That was his problem. He didn't realize that what he had achieved, he had achieved through grace, thought that he was the, would take charge of everything. And... Um, so he learned his lesson. My, my title this, this morning, I titled my talk this morning, True Humility. True Humility. That's because we can distinguish between true humility and false humility. And by false humility, as you all know, as the students of... of uh, psychology. False humility is all about low self-esteem. It's about um, low self-confidence and very low self-respect. It's about, um, it's really a kind of psychological pathology about making yourself a doormat for others. And maybe this is why in the tradition of the teaching of the Vedanta philosophy, in this lineage maybe, if you're talking and read about in the works of Swami Vivekananda, we find that this virtue is not uh, overemphasized. That is, humility is not a virtue that's uh, featured as one of the cardinal virtues. And in fact, Swami Vivekananda, on one occasion, on one occasion, said, and we read there in the complete verse, as he says, I don't believe in humility. I believe in samadarshitwa, the same state of mind with regard to all. The Sanskrit there means samadarshita, it means the same state of mind with regard to all. That's a traditional, same-sightedness is a traditional virtue in the practice of yoga sadhana. Same-sightedness means that you don't feel superior to anyone. But on the other hand, you also don't feel in inferior to others. And uh, therefore, we can see kind of 
in, in, the, in the final analysis that uh, humility is not about true humility. It's not about feelings of, of inferiority and self-diminishment. But true humility is all about seeing the greatness in others. The ideal in this Vedanta philosophy is to see God in everything. And in the presence of God, the natural movement, the default state of mind, is to take the position of the humble servant when you're in the presence of God. This is the natural position, this is the natural response of the, of, of the psyche that is in the presence of God to worship and to serve. And so in the tradition of Vedanta, this is how we understand the virtue of humility, that is the perception and the feeling of the divinity in man and appreciating the greatness of others. Whenever I think about this um, subject, I always recall a time when I kind of felt humility. And uh, we had gone, gone up into the Sierra Sequoia National Park there up on the Kern River. And there began a walking through the forest along what is called the Trail of the Giants. Trail of the Giants. And uh, you get off and you, you're on the road, and you get off and you start walking through these gigantic trees. This is the Sequoia National Park. These are the, these are, these, these are the Sequoia Gigantea, not the Simpervirens. That's the coastal redwoods, which are the tallest trees. These are huge, vast trees. You walk, you begin to walk through the forest. You're marveling and stunned and amazed to see these trees everywhere you look. And then as you come around the, 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 the trail, you see the first of the giants. The, all the other trees are, are nothing compared with these vast. There you stand. You're standing up next to one of these trees, a, a great mass of being. It's a great massive sense of, of being. And uh, as you stand there, your, your consciousness, your, mind, your eyes are drawn upward. Your whole mind is drawn upward. Your consciousness, your mind has got to expand to, to take in the whole vast experience of the tree. You know, in ancient times, they used to worship trees because the tree is like the ultimate symbol of spiritual consciousness, spiritual growth. But there in the presence of that tree, you stand and begin to feel a sense of awe and of wonderment and certainly a humility of spirit. And uh, it's not because you feel small, but because you are in the presence of greatness. Om Dyo Oshanti 
अंतरिक्षा हम शांति ही पृथ्वी शांति ही आप शांति ही ओ शदाया शांति ही वनस्पताया शांति ही विश्वे देवा शांति ही ब्रह्मा शांति ही सारापाम शांति ही शांति रेव शांति ही सामे शांति रेही ओम शांति ही शांति ही शांति ही ओम पीस इन हेवन पीस इस ऑन द एर्थ पीस इस इन द स्काइ एंड इन द वाटर्स द एर्ब्स एंड प्लांट्स एंड ट्रीज आर फुल ऑफ पीस द गॉड्स आर पीसफुल मे दिस इटर्नल यूनिवर्सल पीस एंटर आर सोल्स and beings own peace 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 be unto us all you've been listening to the voice of vedanta podcast from the vedanta society of southern california thanks for listening